The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. My name is Janie. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the people on staff here at UMIN. Um, and we wanted to get to know you. I want to get to know you. That's, that's why we're here. That's really what our job is um, at UMIN is, is to get, know, get to know all of you. So please introduce yourselves. Um, let us know who you are. If you were here last week, you know that this September we are going through a series um, called Finding Home. And we're looking at Luke 15, which you heard Kyle read from the message a little bit ago. Um, and it's Jesus' parable, often um, titled the prodigal son or the lost son. Might sound kind of weird, counterintuitive. We're doing a series called Finding Home, and you guys as college students are leaving home, right? You're moving away from home, so it seems kind of opposite. But we wanted to explore this idea of home. What does it look like? What is it? What, do, what can it look like for each of us? Now, you might be familiar with the story of the lost son. It's a really common one. That if you've been around the church at all, um, you've probably heard about it. Even outside the church, it's a kind of a common story. Child goes away, um, and there's a break in relationship with the parents. Child fails, comes back, and they're reunited. This painting that we're using to represent the series is a famous painting by the Dutch artist Rembrandt. And he painted it sometime in the 17th century. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I have a copy of it, actually, in my office. If you ever want to take a closer look at it, I have a framed copy of it. You can see in this painting that the father is embracing the younger son, who's just come home. And last week, Ryan focused on um, this younger son. He asks for his inheritance, moves away, squanders it pretty quickly on babes and booze and um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever the equivalent was of that, what of that was in the first century. I'm not really sure. And while literally living as a pig, which he's living with pigs, which is ironic as well, because he's probably Jewish, so spending time with pigs is a little bit strange, too, for him, because that wouldn't be kosher, he returns to his father's house um, to find home. And what Ryan pointed out so well last week is that the younger son doesn't have to get himself right to prove anything to his father. He comes home exactly as he is, pathetic, broken, probably ashamed, and this painting demonstrates that the father receives his son unconditionally. Well, tonight, we're actually going to look at the older son in this story. You can see him in the painting, too. He's standing off, at the side, off to the side. He's kind of looking at the father embracing his younger brother. It's kind of interesting to think, what's going on in his head? Why is there a big gap between them um, as he's looking at them. And so that's what I want to look at tonight. It's what I want to explore, the family dynamics that are going on in this story. So how many of you guys are the oldest child in your family? Do we have any oldest childrens in here? Childrens? I just said that. Um, any babies of the family? Do we have any babies? Yeah? Okay. Are there any middle children? <laughs> middle child? Okay. Do we have any onlys here? Any only children? All right, we got a couple of only children. I'm fascinated by birth order psychology. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Kind of talking about what your characteristic, personality characteristics are based on where you are in birth order. Um, probably talked about it in Psych 101. If you haven't taken it yet, I'm sure you'll hear about it. Stereotypically, the oldest is responsible, the rule follower. 
Um, and they're most like parents, kind of, and only children are, tend to be like this too. This is a stereotype. Babies are rebels and attention hogs, yeah? And then the middle children tend to be peacekeepers sometimes. Now, what do you think that I am? Who thinks I know? You said that I was the baby way too quickly, but it's correct. I am the baby of the family. Um, I have an older brother and an older sister. It's kind of funny. I'm the baby talking about the older son, and last week Ryan's the oldest talking talking about the younger son. We didn't really plan that. It just kind of happened. Um, yeah, kind of a commentary switch here. I have an older brother and an older sister, so I have one of each. And um, both of them claimed I was extremely spoiled. No. That's ridiculous. I was not extremely spoiled. That's me with my brother and sister. It's a great representation of our kind of family upbringing or relationships. Based on that picture, the jorts I'm wearing, let me know. It's about 1993, I think. And um, so that gives you an idea of what our relationship looks like. So here's, here's a story. You can, take, you can take that picture off, Megan. Here's a story from growing up. Shows you I'm not spoiled. So I grew up in a house with five people, one bathroom, right? And whenever we got, we got ready in the morning, I had zero access to the bathroom mirror. By the time my mom would blow dry her hair, my dad would brush his teeth, and my sister would take out her hot rollers and feather her hair. Um, and my brother would do whatever he did primping, usually involved mousse. Do you guys even know what that is? Yeah, hair mousse. Um, he would put a bunch of mousse in his hair. And then I would finally get access to the mirror, and immediately my dad would be like, all right, we have one minute to be in the car. Let's go. I mean, I wasn't spoiled, right? Or what they always point to is this fact. When my brother and sister got a license, um, if they wanted a car, they had to get a job and buy it themselves. Um, But my first car, my dad bought me. And when they found out about that, they were appalled. You bought her a car? That's ridiculous. And they said the common refrain that siblings always say when they have suffered an injustice, it's not fair. That is not fair. I cannot believe you bought her a car. So here's the car that my parents, my dad bought me. (laughs) It's a two-tone brown 1984 Escort L. I think the L was for luxury. It had an exquisite mustard yellow interior, oxidized paint chipping off the hood, I called it the triple T, the two-tone turd. And my dad paid $200 for it, which even in 1993 was nothing to pay for a car. And both my brother and my sister, when they saw it, they both said, there is no way I would have driven that car. So there you go. I was cared less about being cool than they did. It's not fair. It's not fair. That is what, if we grew up in a house with siblings, fairness and justice was the end-all, be-all of our existence. You lived or died by making things fair. If you were sharing a brownie and it was cut in half and one person got one half, automatically the other person, his is bigger. He got a bigger piece. It's not fair. Even if you're an only child, I'm sure that you made that proclamation to your parents all the time. It's not fair. I have to go to bed at nine. You guys get to stay up till 11. I know. Now we're like, I wish I could go to bed at 11. I'm so tired. Okay. Do you know what my parents' response was whenever I said, it's not fair? Well, Jenny, life's not fair, which would immediately deflate me. Sometimes I would respond with, yeah, but it should be. And they would say, you're right, it should be, but it's not. End of argument. 
So as a kid, I hated hearing that. Life is not fair. But as an adult, I'm really glad that I learned that lesson pretty on in my life because it's true, unfortunately, right? The world we live in, life is not fair. The sooner we realize it, easier time we're going to have facing the fact that life isn't fair. Okay, that's a downer. Life's not fair, then you die. Thanks, Janie. Real uplifting sermon. But that's not the end. The fact that life isn't fair isn't the end-all, be-all of our life. There's something more. There's something much better that God has for us, something much better than fairness, and that is grace. What we're going to look at tonight is the fact that grace is not fair, and that's awesome. So let's take a minute to pray before we dig into the scripture. God, we thank you that we have an abundance of your grace in our lives. Pray that in this space tonight that we would be aware of your grace in our lives. We would um, know your presence here. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, God, that you would be present, you would speak to us, and you would be glorified in all that we do and say. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the older son um, closer, the relationship he has with his father and with his brother. And I'm going to look at it in the NIV. You heard, you heard, you heard it in the message. And um, as we do, I want you to pay attention to how obsessed with fairness the older son seems to be. So we're going to start in verse 20, and it says, it's talking about the younger son. The younger son um, realized he's living with pigs. What am I doing? He gets up and he goes to his father. So starting in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. <clears throat> meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, I can just see him red face pointing at his father. Look, dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So what we have here is a classic story of sibling rivalry. And whenever I've heard this story talked about, the emphasis is always on the younger son. In our Bible, it's actually titled the prodigal son, the lost son. But I had a professor a few years ago who said, actually, he thinks this whole story is really about the older son. That's what Jesus is trying to emphasize, specifically how angry he was at his father. Dad, you do nothing to show me love. You take my prize 4-H calf and you sacrifice it for my stupid brother's party it's not fair. What about me? Notice me. 
So this story is the lost son. Why does Jesus even include all this stuff about the older brother? If we look at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 1 of chapter 15 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, muttered, I love that, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So around him he has these sinners and he has these Pharisees and teachers of the law. And what are they known for? They're known for doing everything perfectly and expecting everyone to notice it. That's what they're known for. And they're known for complaining that Jesus is spending time with sinners. Now, I guess is they would have heard this story and they would have said, yeah, the older son is right. The father should not have celebrated his younger son. Now, I don't think Jesus is including the older son or kind of pointing things out to the Pharisees because he wants them to see how judgmental they are. I think he wants them to know the younger son is loved and the older son is loved. These pathetic sinners are included in God's love, and you, you people who do everything perfectly, you also are included in God's love. It's not just these pathetic screw-ups that are lost. You are lost, too. You are just as lost as the younger son. Now, what words would you use to describe the older son? What are some of the words that you would use? Anybody? And shout them out. The Bible starts by telling us he was angry. What, else, what other words would you use to describe him? Lost. Lost. Anything else? Jealous. Jealous. Yeah. Selfish. Selfish. Resentful. Bitter. Those are pretty obvious. What about on the positive end of the spectrum? How would you describe this older son? What are some positive things about him? Loyal. Loyal. He didn't leave. Hardworking, responsible. He is obedient. He is dutiful. He has a desire to please. He is seeking admiration through accomplishments. He is fearful of disappointing his parents. All right, is that starting to sound a little bit familiar? I know what that feels like. Why else do you think I would drive a car that I nicknamed after a turd? I wanted to please my dad. I wanted to make him happy. When I read this story, I cannot relate to the younger son. I can understand the difficulty he might have felt in failing miserably and expecting that his dad was not going to welcome him when he came home. But I cannot understand his desire to break the rules in the first place. I was a pretty good kid. When I was a kid, I, uh, I was, did what I was supposed to do. I was a high achiever. And when I look back, when I was your age, even in college, Mostly that came from wanting to please other people around me. And the same can be said for what my relationship with God looked like. I wanted to desperately earn God's love. I wanted God to look at me and say, wow, you are a great Christian. So I did everything I could to earn God's love. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Being obedient, living a life so that others will love you. Living life to keep your parents happy. Living life to keep your friends impressed. Doing things so that you'll gain other people's admiration. So they'll comment about how amazing you are. This seems to be what the older son expects with his relationship with his father. He's going to do everything right, and he's going to earn his father's love and approval. 
But in the midst of doing everything right, the older son has actually become lost. He has no idea what it feels like to be loved by his father. He's completely lost that. In many ways, the lostness of the younger son is easier to understand. It's a classic human failure, straightforward resolution. We can sympathize with it, right? But the older son, the way he's lost, that's harder to see because it is deep down. After all, he did everything right. People probably recognized him, and they were like, wow, your father must be proud. You must be an amazing son. And this lostness is really hard to see because it's very closely connected with his desire to be really good and to be virtuous. But when he is confronted with the fact that his father is overjoyed that his younger brother has returned, there is a darkness that comes up from deep inside it, deep inside of him. It boils to the surface, and all of a sudden, we are glaringly faced with someone who is incredibly resentful, prideful, jealous, selfish. Clearly, he is deeply broken, and he is deeply lost, even though he is doing everything right. And because of this darkness, how he expresses it is by complaining. Complaining to his father that he's getting overlooked. He is not getting noticed. Henry Nowen writes about this. He's a Catholic priest. Um, And he writes about the older son. And he says when he he thinks when the older son is attacking the father, he's actually complaining um, about something much deeper than just his younger brother. Here's what he writes. Talks about the complaining of the older son. It's the complaint expressed in countless subtle and not so subtle ways, forming a bedrock of human resentment. It's the complaint that cries out, I tried so hard, worked so long, did so much, and still I have not received what others get so easily. Why do people not thank me, not invite me, not play with me, not honor me, while they pay so much attention to those who take life so easily and casually? Now one goes on to reveal when he personally gives into complaining, what he sees is this vicious cycle inside of himself. See if you can relate to this. He writes, every time I allow myself to be seduced by complaining, when I start complaining, it spins me down in an endless spiral of self-rejection. As I let myself be drawn into the vast interior labyrinth of my complaints, I become more and more lost until, in the end... I feel myself to be the most misunderstood, rejected, neglected, and despised person in the world. How many of us can relate to feeling that way? Sometime in the last year, sometime in the last week, like the most misunderstood, rejected, neglected, despised person in the world. I know I can relate to that. On the surface, it looks like the brother, the older brother is resenting his younger brother when actually, when he sees the father loving his younger brother, what's coming up is his self-rejection, his self-loathing. And when that comes to the surface, it's surface, it's impossible for him to notice the fact that his father loves him. He cannot see it because all he can see is himself. He's stuck in himself. And it is impossible for him to experience any joy. There's no way that he would be able to see that party going on in the house and go inside and celebrate 
He can't celebrate joy for himself. There's no way he can celebrate joy for other people. What the older son fails to recognize is the father does treat him the same way he treated his brother. What the father does when he sees, tells us in verse 28, when he sees that um, his older son won't come inside, the father goes out to him. The needs of these two sons are very different, but the father knows what he has to do for both of them is go out to where they are. He meets his younger son as he's coming up the road. He goes out to his older son and he demonstrates the love and compassion that they need. Here's what he says in verse 31. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. The response to the father is not an evaluation. It's not a comparison. It's not a reprimand for being childish. It's not a command to get over yourself and come inside already. He simply reminds the older son what he can't believe. His father is always with him. Always. Everything he has is his son's. Always. Regardless of whether we deserve it or not, God, God's love is always available to us. And it's grace. And grace is not fair. It's better than fair. It is more than half. God's love is whole. When we receive it, it's complete. And it's offered to anyone who abundantly, who chooses to receive it. All God's children are lost. Not just the younger son, not just the older son. All of us are lost. And what's available to us is love and forgiveness and redemption Beyond anything we could imagine, we just have to choose to receive it, no matter where we are. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Okay, this isn't permission to fall asleep. This might seem a little bit weird, but I want you to just imagine for a minute. Close your eyes and just imagine for a minute that you're the older son. You're standing outside the house and you're looking in the window and you can see this party going on. You can see your younger brother dance around. Your father's there. You're standing outside looking in. And then you see the father, your father, comes out of the house towards you. And I want you to look at the father's face. What does the father's face look like? When you look at the father's face, can you see a look of love? Can you see love on the Father's face? If you can't see love, I want to ask, what would a look of love look like when you looked at the Father? You can open your eyes. I know I have a hard time knowing what a look of love would be, a God might have for me. And I wonder if we have a difficult time, because like the younger son, We can't really see it because we don't think we deserve it. Or maybe we have a hard time looking and seeing what God's love looks like because, like the older son, we are so busy trying to earn it that we never take the time to look up and see what God's love might look like for us. Why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard? I think one of the biggest reasons is that the world we live in is winners and losers, competition, If one person's receiving good things, that means somebody else must not be, must be going without. In our world of constant comparison, if one person receives love, that means somebody else is rejected, right? 
That's the way we, we view the world. We don't know what grace-filled love looks like. The love we know as the possibility of rejection because a better boyfriend or girlfriend might, might come along. The love we know is connected to statements like, why aren't you more like your older sister? The love we know is connected to being praised for achievements, for good grades, for getting a perfect job, for being an awesome Christian. That's the love that we know. Not simply our creator loves us unfairly, unconditionally. I have a terrible confession to make. This is really embarrassing to say. But when my faith used to look more similar to the older son, when I was working really hard to earn God's love, back when I was your age, when I was in college, I was doing everything I could to make God proud of me. And I was really, really skimpy on offering compliments to other people. Even if I would admire them, even if I would notice them in my mind, I would never say it out loud. Because this is so pathetic. But in my skewed mind, if they were praised for something... I would take something away from me. If somebody else was offered love, that meant that I would become less. It's one of the most ridiculous sins that I've had to confess to God and actually instead receive that there is more than enough love for me and everyone else. In my opinion, the best part of the story that Jesus is sharing is that he doesn't compare the two sons at all. He goes out to both of them. He loves them with a complete love, an undeserved love. There are no thoughts of better or worse. There are no measuring sticks. There is no more or less. And God is going to meet you wherever you are. You just have to let him. You have to let go of comparison and rivalry and the lie that you are less loved than everyone else. That's a lie, that you are less loved than everyone else. You have to choose to trust that there is more than enough love from God. You have to choose to be grateful for all of the things that you have that demonstrate to you that God loves you. We have to surrender to the idea that God's love is fair because it is not. It is unfair and it is unconditional. It's better than fair. It's abundant. It's more than enough, it's more than enough for us to know. That just like the Father demonstrates to his sons, God is always with us. And he's going to always, always receive us as his own. God, we thank you that um, your love is abundant, that your grace isn't fair, that you accept and redeem and forgive without discriminating. And we pray that we would be able to receive your love. We would be able to know what your love looks like when it's directly in our face. God, we want to know that we are accepted. And we pray that no matter where we are, what we're, what we're doing, that we would be reminded that your love is enough for all of us, for all of your children. Your love is more than enough than we need. We pray these things in your name. Amen.